I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. This is our second podcast episode featuring James Lachlan, better known as the publisher of New Direction Books. Lachlan's been responsible for making some of the great literature of the world available in English translation. He's also known to many as a correspondent, publisher, and friend of many 20th century literary giants, such as Kenneth Rexworth, Ezra Pound, E.E. Cummings, and William Carlos Williams. As a young man, Lachlan went to Italy to study with Ezra Pound at what Pound called the Esuversity. At one point, when the young would-be poet showed Pound a handful of poems, Pound responded that Lachlan would not make it as a poet and should consider doing something useful, like becoming a publisher. Unfortunately, Jay only took part of Pound's advice. He founded New Directions, but he kept up with the poetry and ultimately became a wonderful poet in his own right, as you will hear in the selections he reads as part of this very special recording. This program was recorded at Mr. Lachlan's Connecticut country home with support from the New York State Council on the Arts, not long before his death in 1997 at the age of 83. The original source and age of the recording accounts for the audio quality, which is not quite up to what you're used to on Poetry Spoken Here. Basically, the audio came from two little built-in microphones and a couple of video cameras at the time of the interview. Following Lachlan, we'll have a little segment as always, and this time it's going to be about a literary resource. A little dog with a big imagination that can teach kids about literature. His name is Wishbone. this new long work in progress called Byways, correct? Yes, I had, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, you've had such an interesting life. You should write your autobiography. So I was taken in by this adulation. And I tried to do it in prose, and I got so bored that I quit. Prose is not really my thing at all. Mm -hmm. So I then thought of the idea of uh, copying what Kenneth Rexroth had done uh, in his uh, travel book, uh, forget the name of it now, but uh, and that worked pretty well. It's it's verse. It's a busted trimeter. Mm-hmm. In other words, he's got sometimes two or three accents, uh-huh. and it just rolls along. And the whole idea is to make it go very fast. Mm-hmm. There's no chronology in this thing at all. It's simply a mosaic uh, of sequences uh, about people I've known or places mm-hmm. where I've been. And this, this one that I, if I may read to you, this is about, uh, well, she, she'd probably be flattered. This is about, oh, well, I don't think you should mention that. I cut that out. We won't mention who she was, but a very beautiful girl. And this is called The Desert in Bloom, and it's about the, uh, the uh, Nevada desert. Why can't you remember the Nevada desert? awash with bright-colored flowers when we camped not far from Tonopah that April long ago. It was soon after we had met in San Francisco and fallen in love. You were George's sister, the beautiful poet's beautiful sister. That's how I got to know you. 
Surely you must remember how the desert that was so harsh all the rest of the year, rocks and gray sand, had suddenly burst into bloom, a salute to Persephone in almost violent praise of spring, a salute that would last only a few weeks till the snow moisture in the ground would be exhausted. Rexroth had loaned us a tent, and we gathered dry cactus to cook over an open fire. At night we heard the soft cooing of doves from all around us in the dark, but at dawn they ceased their complaining. You said that they reminded you of the doves in Provence when you were there as a girl, the Roucoulement des Colombes, that the troubadours and their ladies once heard in the castle gardens, recording their sound in their consoles. The ground was hard under our sleeping bags. The desert gets chilly at night, so cold that sometimes we had to squeeze into one bag, skin to skin, and laced together. At night in the desert, the stars seemed twice as bright as anywhere else. When we lay on our backs, we would look up into the vastness, trying to locate the constellations and remember the names that were given them by the Greeks in the myths how many thousands of years ago. Andromeda and the Dioscure, Cassiopeia, whom Perseus saved from the sea monster, Orion the hunter, and Sirius his dog, brightest of all, the Pleiades, whose motions tell the season, Veronique, whose pretty lock of hair has lived in song, the lion, the dragon, and the swan. Your people were Jewish, but your beauty was more of Attica than of Phoenicia, great brown eyes, dark hair, and olive skin. The girls of Lesbos would have adored you, but you were not of their kind. Your body is described in the Song of Songs. Not a fraction of an inch would I have changed in its proportions if I were a sculptor. The desert was empty, and I would ask you to lie naked in the sun now and then, changing your pose, a moving sculpture. You had the marks of Eros, a girl fit for the mysteries, liquid as the fountain Arethusa, and you were funny and endearing and passionate. Holding hands, we took walks on the vast desert before the sun became too hot. I picked flowers and made a multicolored garland for your hair. The handmaiden of Aphrodite, Venerandum, in the shade of the tent, I read you the exquisite love sonnets of Louise Labay, which aroused us to make love again, hot as it was, the sweat glistening on our bodies. One day we drove into Tonopah, now the slumbering ruin uh, of old hell and damnation mining town, where once fortunes of gold were won and lost at the tables, and men killed for it. The streets were empty, but in what is left of the Grand Hotel California, we found an old man dozing on top of the green gaming table. We woke him up and shot craps with silver dollars for chips. We stayed on the desert for three days when we had used up the water we had brought in cans. Now, after 50 years, we're in touch again. You've had four husbands, and I'm on my third marriage. You say that you can hardly remember our lovemaking on the flowering desert. How can that be? For me, it's as fresh as if it only happened yesterday.
I see you clear with my garland in your hair. Now we are two old people nursing our aches. What harm can there be in remembering? We cannot hurt each other now. You see how it flows. Oh yeah. It's 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 just a flowing. It's a kind of a flowing prose, is what it is. But you you arrange it in these broken trimeter lines of Rex Roth, and that gives it enough discipline to serve for the purpose. I mean, if you tried to write this, if you tried to write this in, uh, you know, in prose, yeah. be flat. I mean, all that classical stuff would be flat. Would go. So it's much better to. Williams is smiling down on us. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had it all figured out. He had all, all the business of metric, though he never found, you know, the 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 uh, perfect meter that he wanted. What did he call it, Martin? Do you remember? The triadic foot. Yeah. The, well, no, it's beyond the triadic foot. It's the. It'll come to me, maybe, and I'll give you the name. I think. But he never found that. He was always searching for it, and he never felt that he really found that that perfect uh, meter for his work. This is uh, uh, from a book called. Oh, I forget what it's called, but anyway. This poem is called The House of Light, and it's, it's sort of religious or metaphysical or something. The house of light has been designed by the master builder, but the workmen have not been able to build it. The carpenters and the masons have toiled for many years, but they cannot find a way to make their materials adhere to enclosed light. Every method has been a failure. Neither lumber nor stone, not even metal or glass, will serve to hold in the light. It always escapes and returns to its source. Can anyone build the house of light? This one just came out in Poetry Magazine, and it's, it's typical of my recent sort of undisciplined work where I'm uh, just uh, slashing around. And it's called uh, Those to Come. Will those who come? Of course, actually, what prompts all of these old age poems is the is the, the presence of death. I'm not afraid of dying, but I just kind of reckon with it and try to put things in order. Those to come, will those who come after us remember who we were, except for three or four generations of family? Will there be a child who amuses herself? by going through cartons of old letters in the attic? Will she draw crayon pictures of the people she reads about, showing what she imagines we were like? I'd be a fool to hope that any of my verses would remain in print. I must value them by the amusement I have in composing them. Just that, nothing more. But what happened to make me grow old so soon? When I was young, I never thought of old age, of what it would be like. And why can I recall only part of some scene I'd like to relive now? Where have the lost fragments gone? As I lie wakeful in bed, what I see is a long corridor of closed doors. It's a great image. I, I hooked that off the TV. Uh, because they were doing one, I think, a, a, a mammoth play. It's his, it's his phrase. I 
taking the pencil and we're watching. You know, cult, popular culture is not entirely to be sniffed at. Not entirely. The country road. In the painting that hangs in our dining room, a country road, a dirt road, is winding up the slope of a mountain ridge. It begins in pasture land and goes up through scattered trees to dense woodland. It is a scene in western Pennsylvania, near the farm where we went in summer to get away from the heat of the city. I say that the road is winding, not winds, because for me the painting sometimes seems to be still in progress, though the dear lady who did it has been bed more than 15 years. Some days if I'm alone as I pass through the road, I may notice some very small alteration in the composition as if the artist were still working on it. A tree may have slightly changed its position in the landscape or the farmhouse and barns in the middle distance. A patch of color in the pasture of the cornfield of the foreground may appear different. The contour of the mountain ridge against the sky has been moving. Even in the direction that the road is taking, its curves are never precisely the same. It's always a sun-filled scene, but the quality of the light may vary. As my eyes walk that familiar route uh, where I walked so often as a child, I see things I hadn't detected before, little things of no great importance, but I'm aware of them. The country road, I may say, is a painting done by my cousin Marjorie Phillips, who was a, a very gifted landscape painter. From the Phillips artistic family. Yeah, you know, the Phillips collection. The family there, she was yeah. a wife of Duncan Phillips, who uh -huh. built up the Phillips collection in Washington. It's a sort of a national monument now. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it's wonderful. What's wonderful is it's being in somebody's house. Yep. You know, that's what's great. Here is a rather cruel poem. Uh, it's called Experience of Blood. I never knew there was so much blood in a man until my son killed himself. He did it with a kitchen knife, stabbing himself all over and cutting his wrists. Then he got into the bathtub and died there in the water. That's where we found him. But could he have changed his mind for a moment? The floor was a carpet of blood and blood was scattered on the walls. The brain was covered with blood. The basin was covered with blood. Did he stand there looking at himself in the mirror, still wondering who he really was, and then went on with it? I had to wipe away the blood. It took me four hours to do it, but I couldn't have asked anyone else because, after all, it was my blood, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, poor boy. He was just... From a mess from childhood, we took him to seven shrinks and none of them could find out what was wrong with it. In the end, he gave up. And here is the, I think this is the last one we have here in the pack. This is called The Consolations. The delights of old age are the little adventures of the imagination. A beautiful face recalls another that was so much loved long ago, and we console ourselves, saying, I'm young again.
Charlie Rossiter. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. Let me ask you a simple question. Can you imagine a first or second grader, say six, seven years old, who is familiar with the plots and characters from the tales of classic literature, such as Romeo and Juliet, The Purloined Letter, The Tempest, Pride and Prejudice, Robin Hood, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, It may sound incredible, but the idea of a young child highly informed about this kind of literature is not so far-fetched. Thanks to a wonderful television series that PBS first broadcast in the late 1990s. The show was called Wishbone. And the lead character was a Jack Russell Terrier by the same name. And Wishbone lives with his owner, Joe, a boy in his early teens, in a fictional all-American small town. Wishbone's known as the little dog with a big imagination, because everyday contemporary occurrences in his life cause him to recall a bit of classic literature with a similar plot. When this happens, Wishbone is transformed to the main character in the literature, complete with costume, and we're able to hear him speak. The characters in his flights of imagination see him as the literary character he's portraying, not as a dog. What does this have to do with poetry? Well, for one thing, there are the Shakespeare episodes. And we all know that any time Will puts pen to paper, the result is poetic. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're the kind of person who believes that general literacy and an appreciation of classic literature is beneficial to anyone's interest in poetry. The thing that's so beautiful about Wishbone is the way the episodes are structured. They create a perfect example of what the great humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow calls transcending the work-play dichotomy. A half-hour Wishbone episode is fun to watch in and of itself for children and adults. And as a byproduct, you leave with basic knowledge of the classic tale. It's the best kind of effortless learning you can imagine. A typical episode begins with Wishbone and the family in a contemporary situation. Then something happens to remind Wishbone of the famous literary work. The rest of the episode involves switching from modern times and the everyday situation to the classic tale that parallels the contemporary. I'm going to give you an example. The episode about Robin Hood, called Robin Hood, Paw Prince of Thieves. The contemporary situation is this. Joe comes upon Ellie the lunch lady, beloved by all the kids, loading things in the back of her car. She tells him she's taking food that would be thrown away instead to the food bank at the homeless shelter. Joe starts to help her, while Wishbone watches enthusiastically about all that food. But then the head of food services comes out and tells them they have to throw the food in a dumpster because it's against regulations to donate food. There's paperwork involved that he just hasn't got time for, can't be bothered with. Mr. Uptight goes back inside and Joe urges Ellie to ignore his command and take the food to the shelter anyway. After a little discussion, they decide to do that. The idea of breaking rules for a good cause 
reminds Wishbone of Robin Hood and how Robin stole from the rich to help the poor people of Nottingham. The scene on the screen flashes to the Middle Ages with Wishbone as Robin Hood in costume. He encounters a decadent nobleman in Sherwood Forest and takes the bad guy's chest of gold, which he distributes to poor peasants, while keeping some of the money out because Robin Hood is saving up to ransom King Richard. King Richard's being held captive uh, somewhere abroad, you may recall from the story. Well, meanwhile, back in the 20th century, when they get to the homeless shelter, Joe signs a form that needs to be signed so the shelter can accept donations. He's trying to shield Ellie. Well, it doesn't quite work, but we'll get to that. So anyway, over the half-hour episode, the two stories proceed in parallel, with scenes flashing from modern times to the Middle Ages. The supervisor finds out about the donation because the shelter sends them a copy of the form that Joe signed, verifying the source of the food. Ellie, the lunch lady, is fired. This injustice inspires Joe to organize the kids into a protest. The food services guy is furious about this. He can't stand this kind of disruptive behavior, he says. And he calls Joe's mom, who shows up and sticks by Joe because he's doing what he believes is right, and she feels like that's a very good thing that he's doing. Meanwhile, back in the Middle Ages, the basic Robin Hood story unfolds with the archery contest that King John used to lure Robin out and try to capture him. And there's a huge battle between the bad guys and the merry men that ensues. And meanwhile, major characters such as Maid Marian and Little John are introduced. In the 20th century, the principal who might support Joe and Ellie, the principal of the school, she's been detained at a conference out of town. I love it. That's so beautiful because that's just what's happening with King Richard who's being held captive somewhere abroad. As Joe's mom and Mr. Food Services go back and forth, the principal shows up and she sorts things out, learns what's happening and ultimately decides that the school's going to start a food donation program whether Mr. Food Services likes it or not. Meanwhile, in the Middle Ages, King Richard returns. Having been ransomed by Robin Hood, Robin and the Merry Men are pardoned and are no longer wanted criminals. Both stories end the way you'd like them to. At the end of each Wishbone episode, he takes about two minutes to explain something or other about how the episode was made, especially aspects that might be of concern or disturbing even to a young child. In the Robin Hood case, with the help of various clips and outtakes, he tells how fight scenes are staged, choreographed that is, so that no one is ever in real danger and no one really gets hurt. Though not regularly broadcast at this time, 2018, Wishbone is available at many public libraries, and many, if not all, episodes are actually available on YouTube, an incredible resource that you can share with the children in your life. Even though it's a program aimed at kids, it's truly an all-ages program. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and you've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you.
Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Monley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.